Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance and direction on that study. Father, we are so thankful that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word, that over the period of 2,000 years of revelatory activity, You have given us everything we need for life and godliness, the Scripture says. It is a sufficient and complete revelation. And it is given in such a way that we are consistently driven to go back to it, to read it, to be reminded of these eternal truths, and to probe even deeper into what is said, that we might come to a greater understanding of who you are, what you have provided for us, and how we are to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Father, as we study today, continue our study in the life of Elijah, we pray that the principles that are exemplified in his life, his leadership, and in the accounts of Scripture, that we might be challenged to see that these same principles and patterns are just as true today as they were at that time, and that we should emulate that in his life as he is uh, applying your word consistently as you are maturing him and working to mature us as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. The last two or three weeks we have been out of 1 Kings. We've been over in passages such as 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and 12, Philippians chapter 4, a couple of other uh, passages we went to in the New Testament showing that God has a pattern for training believers for future ministry, and that pattern of training follows certain principles that we see uh, exemplified throughout the centuries, whether we're talking about an Old Testament prophet such as Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Daniel, whether you're talking about uh, New Testament apostle, whether it's the apostle Paul, or whether it's just every single believer in the church age. That means God is working the same way in your life as he did in the life of these who are considered such great saints from either the Old Testament or the New Testament. James chapter 5 says, Elijah was a man 
of like nature as we are. And the emphasis there is that what made him unique, what made him strong in his spiritual life wasn't simply that God had gifted him to be a prophet and it wasn't because he had some uh, supernatural ability that went beyond anything that we have. In fact, as a church-age believer, you have more at your disposal than he had because we have the indwelling spirit, the filling of the spirit, we have a completed canon of scripture, and we are in Christ and have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So we have more resources spiritually than he did. But the fundamental principle of training holds true throughout the dispensations. And we can study in Elijah and see examples, see the illustration of these doctrinal principles that hold true throughout the ages. And chapter 17 is a description of how God prepares Elijah for the confrontation that occurs in chapter 18. There is a future for all of us. You have a future ministry. You may not know what it is, when it will be. It could be in time between now and the time of your physical death, or it could be in the future when we return with the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. And right now, you and I are being taken through this training process, this teaching process, so that we can learn as much as we can today about who God is, what he has done for us, and to live on the basis of his word. And we see that there are certain uh, principles, certain procedures that are foundational to spiritual growth. And one of these is learning to trust God's word, to trust in the promises, to apply them on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. And we looked at how God had taught this principle to Paul in uh, his life, as exemplified in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 11 and 12, as well as uh, as he's later in his mature years reflected upon the impact of that in his letter to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, so that he could make statements such as, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. The emphasis there is both on the not worrying, the command, the prohibition there, but also the positive to pray. And both of those uh, we see exemplified with Elijah, that he had more than enough to worry about as he saw the... Uh, sustaining details of life, water, food, drying up before his very eyes, and yet he learned to trust God, an absence of worry, but the presence of prayer. For that's the focal point of James chapter 5, uh, verse 17, is that, that Elijah was a man of prayer. And so we see that exemplified in his, uh, in his life. So as we come to 1 Kings chapter 17, I want to wrap up today what occurs in the first test, which is covered in, the, uh, in verses 2 through 7. The situation is described in the first verse. Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now in the... Uh, economy of language that the Holy Spirit uses, he has really summarized 
what probably was a pretty magnificent, pretty dramatic confrontation between Elijah and Ahab. And the focal point of that was Elijah's announcement that was based on God's promise of discipline upon a, an apostate nation from Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy as well, that part of that discipline would entail drought and consequent famine. So there's a lot of application that we can see here in our own lives as the nation of Israel is going through a period of economic crisis and catastrophe that lasted for three and a half years, and it continued to get worse as each day uh, day went by. And the reason for the economic crisis was that there was a spiritual re- uh, problem, which was the rejection of God and the uh, turning to idols, especially the most egregious kind of idol worship, which was the worship of the fertility gods and goddesses as exemplified in the uh, Baal religion, which was introduced by Ahab's wife, Jezebel. So that's the background. And as soon as Elijah made this uh, statement that there would not be rain again, no dew at all, which is also important in uh, Israel, especially in the Valley of Esbalon, uh, also known as the Valley of Megiddo, uh, the breadbasket of the northern kingdom. There's a heavy dew that occurs that, that even without rain, the dew there is so heavy that the crops can still, uh, can still grow. So that's why he says there will be no rain or dew during these years except at my word. Immediately after that, the Lord came to Elijah and commanded him to leave and depart and go to a place that God would, where God would provide for him and God would protect him. Now, we see that Elijah responds by obedience. And this reflects a principle that we saw highlighted in our study of Philippians chapter 4. And that is that in God's training program, there are two things that are emphasized as foundational. Uh, this is all there is to it, but these two things were emphasized. One is volition, that we have a responsibility to obey God's command. We can disobey, which entails discipline, or we can obey. And thinking, that the spiritual life of the believer is grounded upon thought. It's grounded upon an understanding of what God says and a knowledge of his word. It's not the, the Christianity is not just some mystical uh, religion that you sort of contemplate your navel, navel and try to figure out what God wants you to do. It is a study of God's word that entails uh, principles of interpretation, principles of grammar, uh, principles of doing word studies, lexicography, all of these things, so that we can have an accurate understanding of just exactly what God says to us, and it is through God the Holy Spirit working in our lives that we see how these uh, principles apply to our lives. So the, uh, the foundational training is addressed to these two elements. We have to learn how to think according to God's word, think according to uh, God's will. But it's not just some academic thing. It's not just gaining knowledge about God's word. Like you may have a lot of knowledge about history, a lot of unnecessary trivia about 
uh, movies or theater or sports or whatever it might be, and that's just you know, a- academic facts that clutter up your mind, it moves towards a transformation of character that as we study God's word and we learn about who he is and what he has done for us, as we accumulate that academic knowledge, then as we apply it, it is God the Holy Spirit who uses that to transform who we are into the image of Jesus Christ. It's ultimately about transformed character and preparation for future ministry. So just as Elijah is being prepared for his future ministry, we're being prepared for our future ministry. And the key idea that we see here is this idea of training, training. And you can think about this within your own frame of reference. Some of you come out of a military background. Others of you have a sports background. Others of you may have a uh, background in drama or dance or uh, you may have a background in uh, working in some sort of emergency medical procedures. But in your background, you have gone through some sort of training that entailed concentration and study and discipline. And you had to work at applying the things that you learned in the classroom so that they became a part of who you are, so that when the opportunities came to apply what you were studying, it had become second nature to you. It became part of your person. And this is what happens with anybody who becomes successful at what they do, from a a teacher to an accountant to a lawyer. They have to learn and practice the, the basics of their profession, which they they learn in the classroom. Now, God has designed the local church as the training environment for believers. And the chief training officer is really the pastor. And that's at the core of the idea of what a pastor does. The New Testament uses a word for equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of service. It's a uh, training type of ministry. The Old Testament uses uh, a word also that entails this idea of training but when you think in terms of, uh, of, of a training mission and you think in terms of, of, of the local church as the, uh, the engine for providing that training for you, it helps you to realize that it's not about just coming together and having good fellowship or drinking coffee or enjoying the food that the ladies provide um, back in the kitchen and everybody enjoys that. But ultimately it's all about... Uh, internalizing the Word of God and then making it a part of our thinking and our day-to-day living. And when we reach a maturity, a mastery of those spiritual skills and abilities, the Bible uses a word to describe that called wisdom. And the Hebrew word is a picturesque word for that. It's the word chokmah, which is used to describe the uh, craftsmanship of the those who worked on the on the tabernacle, Holyab and Be- Bezalel, who were the uh, carpenters, the silversmiths, the uh, those who worked with the gold and fashioning something that was uh, a beautiful artistry, and that's where our spiritual life is headed, so that our lives become a work of of beauty and skill that's produced by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And that, that beauty that, that we 
uh, acquire with the transformation of our character uh, glorifies God. Now, we see this exemplified in some passages in uh, Proverbs. Uh, for example, Proverbs 11.2 says that when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Now, that second clause there, but with the humble is wisdom, connects wisdom, what I just talked about, that is that skill at applying God's word to a foundational mental attitude, which is humility. We saw that emphasized as well with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about his testing with the um, uh, thorn, uh, thorn of the flesh and that God was teaching him to rely upon his grace. That's what what humility is. It is an orientation, a submission to God's uh, authority and is contrasted with pride. Pride is this sort of the natural orientation. It's the default position of your sin nature. From the moment you came out of the womb, your default position was uh, self-absorption and self-reliance, and, and the whole focus was on, on you. And it is only through the process of God's training that God begins to knock all the rough edges off of our pride and our arrogance, and we have to reach a point where we are willing to submit to him and orient to his authority. And the Bible uses that word humility to describe that. It's not somebody who just becomes sort of a, uh, a doormat that everybody walks over. But the idea of humility is the idea of, of someone who is completely oriented to authority and operates under that authority without letting his own desires, his own will interfere with the accomplishment of the mission. So that the scriptures say that Moses was the most humble of all men. Now, Moses ran a nation of somewhere between two and a half, three million uh, Jews, taking all of these complaining, uh, rebellious Jews through the wilderness for the desert for 40 years. And that was an extremely tough thing to do and demanded strong leadership and demanded somebody of strong uh, personal character traits, not somebody who's just a doormat. But he is the most humble of all men, meaning he was most oriented to God's authority. So before God can use us in any kind of ministry or service, He has to begin to deal with our pride. If we do not deal with our arrogance and orient to his authority and develop humility, then there is no spiritual growth. So Proverbs 11.2 emphasizes that, that with humility is wisdom. Humility is part of grace orientation, because in grace orientation we're learning to depend upon what God provides and not what we provide. Then two other verses in the Proverbs connect another idea. The fear of the Lord is the uh, instruction or training for wisdom. And that word for uh, training is a Hebrew word, masur, which has the idea of instruction or discipline or training. Now think about those three words. You look the word up in any any Hebrew lexicon, those are the, the three basic words that you get. And in many English translations, it's uh, 
translated with the word instruction. But the primary meaning that you find in the better Hebrew lexicons is the idea of discipline. And discipline is really training. Whenever we're training, we're being trained for some job, for some mission, for some ability, it entails discipline. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to learn to uh, think in terms of priorities and and not do things that we otherwise would like to do because it's a distraction from accomplishing the objective. And so we have to learn self-discipline, and we have to uh, acquire that discipline. Sometimes it's imposed from the outside. You, uh, as you're growing up, you're, you have a certain discipline that's imposed upon you by your parents, at least if they are godly parents and they understand their role and responsibility as believers to raise up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then that, that entails disciplining children, teaching them to control the uh, desires of their sin nature and to uh, bring that under control and to be disciplined and so that they can accomplish things in life. And that's the role of the parent. It's the role of the teacher. And God is entailed in that as well. So the starting point for understanding the kind of discipline we should have in the spiritual life is orientation to God's authority, the fear of the Lord. And this word fear isn't just, doesn't just have the idea of, of um, a respect for his authority, but it has the idea uh, of recognizing what can happen to us in terms of divine discipline if we're disobedient. There is a certain level of fear or anxiety associated with disobedience. I can remember when I was a a child on the uh, occasions when I would smart mouth off to my mother. Now, I know you don't believe I did that, but I did on occasion. And my mother was in a wheelchair, and that never hindered her, trust me. Uh, sometimes I think the wheelchair empowered her. When I was in high school, I, I got a decal from the 2nd Armored Division at Fort Hood to slap on the back of her wheelchair. The motto of the 2nd Armored Division was Hell on Wheels. And when I really got in trouble, uh, most of the time she would handle it. But if I really had done something egregious, then she would just say, well, we'll just let your father handle it when he comes home. And that was occasion to go to my room and be fearful for the rest of the day because I understood what those consequences would mean. And that's the idea of the fear of the Lord. It entails respect but it also recognizes the seriousness of that relationship to God, and that is the beginning of wisdom as we read in the first chapter of Proverbs. So the fear of the Lord is the instruction, but it's the idea of training, that discipline entailed in training for wisdom. And to uh, fear the Lord entails orientation to his authority. It's orientation to his grace, its humility. And the conclusion, the second clause there is, and before honor, literally glory, it's the Hebrew word kavod there meaning glory, before glory comes humility. Before God can really use you, we have to learn, develop humility. Proverbs 29:23 echoes these same ideas. A man's pride will bring him low, 
but a humble spirit will obtain honor. This is ultimately exemplified, as we've seen in Philippians chapter 2, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Proverbs 22, 4 states, The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. If we want to have real life, that is related to uh, subordinating our will to God's will and learning uh, biblical humility, which is orientation to God's grace. And we can't escape that. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through that same process. The Lord Jesus Christ was perfect, sinless in his humanity. And in his humanity, he still had to go through the same process, the same training procedure that every one of, El- every one of us goes through. The difference is that he did not have a sin nature to uh, distract him but he still had to grow and mature in his humanity and learn to trust God and to uh, be uh, strong in his own spiritual life. And that prepared him for his future ministry, his future work on the cross. So there is the same procedures of training and preparation. We look at passages such as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, that is, God the Father, is fitting for him, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that is, to fulfill the plan of salvation, to perfect, that is, the idea of to mature, the author of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, through sufferings. So if the Lord Jesus Christ had to go through this same training procedure, which taught him humility and orientation to God, not that he was disobedient. See, we're born with that orientation to rebelliousness. He wasn't. But he still has to go through that positive growth procedure. He had to go through the training. Hebrews 5.8 echoes that. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. This is foundational, as we saw in the life of the Apostle Paul, where in 2 Corinthians 12.7-10 he stated, For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given, to, given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. So God works to... Wipe out our arrogance. Concerning this, Paul said, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected. That's that same word we saw in Hebrews 2 related to the Lord Jesus Christ. That power is is, uh, perfected or matured, completed in weakness. So we have to learn to orient to God's authority and that comes through a process of testing. And we've looked at James 1, 2 through 40. We are to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests, because you know that the testing of your faith uh, produces endurance, and let endurance have its maturing result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So there's this, this ongoing process of training that takes place, and the purpose is to teach us humility. We can never have success in our spiritual life or in serving the Lord if it's not grounded on humility. Now, basically, humility involves 
uh, three aspects. Three aspects. First of all, a submission to God's word. God's word is the representative of God's authority. What his word says we are to do. So it begins with submission to God's word. As we study God's word, we learn about God's plan. We learn about how God, God's plan for every believer's life, God's procedures for taking us through uh, spiritual growth to spiritual maturity. And so we have to submit to that plan. That means we have to read his word, study his word. We have to uh, conscientiously walk by means of the Holy Spirit. We have to focus on abiding in Christ, walking in the light. All of these terms that we have, we have studied, that's submission to God's plan. And then we need to learn to accept his provision. He supplies for us that which we need to accomplish his will in our lives. He is not going to give us what we don't need. There may be things in life we look and say, well, I'd like to have that, or I wish I had that. God hasn't given me that, so he's not really supplied everything. God gives us what we need to accomplish the mission, the task that he has set before us. And it is that provision of his word and the spiritual resources that is based on grace. So ultimately, humility has to do with understanding the grace of God, understanding of what God has supplied for us and what God has provided for us. And if we don't learn to rest in his grace provision, then when the real battles occur and the opportunities to serve him occur, we're not prepared to uh, engage in those battles or those opportunities on the basis of God's uh, supplying God's provision, and we end up trying to do it our own way. Well, that's the situation that we find Elijah in. He's taken out of the way, and he is taken to uh, a place across, it appears from the text to say across the Jordan on the east side, but actually the uh, Hebrew word there is a little bit ambiguous. It could mean a across the Jordan, which would be on the east side of the Jordan from Samaria. Uh, Samaria, he's originally from the area of Gilead, and he goes to Samaria to confront Ahab. And then if we understand the text correctly, where he is to go uh, to the brook Kerith, which uh, is east of the Jordan, some translations say. Others say it's before the Jordan. It could be on either side. We're just not sure. But traditionally, it's understood to be in the Transjordan area across from uh, across from the northern kingdom there, across from Samaria in the Transjordan area. And this is a an area that was uh, had little uh, inhabitation. There were few people there and a place where God could hide Elijah. But there weren't a lot of grocery stores over there. Now, you didn't have a new HEB on the corner, and you didn't have a, uh, a central market down the street. And so Elijah was going to have to learn to depend upon God's grace and upon his provision for each and every circumstance that he faced. And in James, uh, I mean, in 1 Kings 17, verse 4, God says, It shall be that you will drink of the brook uh, that I have uh, there, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Now, the territory in that part of 
the Transjordan looks something like that on on the background of the of the screen there. And this is in a time when it is uh, in summer, so it's it looks something like uh, what it might have appeared in the drought, but not quite that green. So after about a year and a half of no dew and no rain in this area, it would have been extremely barren. And each day, as each day went by, the water in the brook would disappear, would get a little lower, and yet it was Elijah's responsibility to learn to trust God. And this happens in each of our lives. Now, he responds in obedience and Verses 5 and 6 state, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, unquestioned obedience. For he went and lived by the brook Kerith, which is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. Now notice how God provided for him. There is a part of the provision was based on the natural, normal course of events so that uh, God may provide for you through a job. God may provide for you through uh, the normal means in which he supplies most of our needs. We get a job, we work. But there are other times in life when that's not necessarily enough, and God provides for our physical needs through other ways. And we learn to trust him. I know that there were times when I was in seminary that God provided for me uh, through different jobs. I had all kinds of different jobs. I cleaned swimming pools and I cleaned, um, and, I, and I sold insurance briefly and a number of other different kinds of things. Worked on the loading docks for some of the trucking companies in Dallas. And anybody who goes through seminary usually goes through things of that nature. Anybody who goes through school often, uh, works various different jobs. And God provides through those normal means. But then there are those little grace gifts that we sometimes get where someone says, I'll help you with your tuition this semester, or someone sends a check in the mail, something of like that, and that's just God's uh, additional grace. Now, I use the illustration of seminary because, of course, that's common in my experience, but one of the things I've seen in recent years, the last 10 or 20 years, is a... Uh, a decrease in the number of men who are willing to be challenged to pick up from where they are on the East Coast or West Coast or up North or South or wherever they are and to move across the country to go to seminary. But see, when you do something like that, that's part of the training. It's just as much part of the training as what you learn in the classroom because when you pack up your bags and you move across the country, uh, you have to start trusting God. And if you can't trust God to supply for your needs on a daily basis, how in the world are you going to be able to trust God to provide for the needs of a congregation when you become a pastor? I know that I had a, a certain level of self-sufficiency when I first uh, was going to go to seminary because uh, my mother, as I mentioned earlier, had polio. Right before I was born, she was working at the time. And so from that point on, I received Social Security checks. So I'm one of the few people who's ever going to come out flush with the Social Security system. And my father wisely invested that money when I was growing up. And 
That provided for some of my college. I uh, also had an ROTC scholarship, so that took care of the rest of it. See, that's that was God's grace in a couple of different ways. And there was still a nice little nest egg left when I uh, graduated from college. I worked for a couple of years, saved some more money, and I thought, boy, this is great. I've got enough money in the bank to pay my tuition for the first two years at seminary. This is great. I can, uh, I can not work for two years, and God supplied everything for me. But the Lord had another plan, and about um, three months, four months before I was to go to uh, seminary, I was driving back to my apartment, which was just down here off of uh, Long Point, not very far, actually just around the corner within eyesight of where I live now. Sometimes you never go very far in life. And at that time, it was, Long Point was a two-lane road with a ditch on each side and no street lights. And a, um, there was a car in front of me, probably about 50 or 60 feet, and uh, a car coming towards me, and the young lady driving the car towards us had been imbibing of uh, illegal uh, drugs too much that night, and she swerved between the guy in front of me and me into my lane. So that one second I'm looking at red taillights in front of me, and the next second I'm looking at white headlights in front of me. And I just uh, slammed, uh, uh, or excuse, excuse me, she, was, she actually hit him. She was in front of him. And she hit him, and I was far enough back to where in normal conditions I would have had braking room. But when somebody has a head-on collision with the car in front of you, you lose that braking room. And so I rear-ended him, and that pretty much totaled my car. Oh, there goes all my tuition money. What am I going to do? Well, God provided through a friend who rebuilt the car for me, but still cost took away about half of what I had saved and stored up to handle those the, the tuition. But God provided in some he was teaching me to trust in him and to rely upon him for uh for daily sustenance. And that's exactly what happens in uh, this first part of uh, chapter 17. God is teaching Elijah that even in the most desperate circumstances out there in the economic crisis, in the drought, that God was going to supply everything for him, and God would do it in many different ways. This is an important thing that we all have to learn. Now in verse 7, we read, it happened after a while that the brook dried up. I just love the way the Holy Spirit writes these things. I mean, it's just such a, such a succinct way of stating it, and yet we have to think about it to realize what that must have been like if you were Elijah sitting out there on that uh, dry and dusty area now, and everything has dried up, and you're wondering what's next. That First, the brook dried up. Then God told him where he was going next. God didn't say, okay, Elijah, things are going to dry up for a while. And when they do, I've got a plan. So Elijah has to trust completely in the Lord that when the time comes, God will continue to take care of him. And so in verse 8 we read, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there 
to provide for you. So this is the command. He is to arise, he's to go to Sidon, uh, which is in Phoenicia. Now here's our map. And the area in shaded in purple there is the area of the northern kingdom. We see where the Kareth is located somewhere probably on that in the Transjordan area, east of the Jordan. And Zarephath is located up on the coast in the uh, area that's shaded in uh, gold or beige. And that is in the territory of Phoenicia between uh, just south of Tyre. This is the area that is the heart of enemy territory. Remember, the enemy at this time spiritually is the religion of the uh, Sidonians, the religion of Tyre, the religion of the Phoenicians, the Baal worship. And this is what uh, Elijah is opposing. And now God says, okay, I'm going to take you out of Israel and put you into the heart of enemy territory, and I'm going to provide for you. Now, it's about 100 miles from where Elijah was to Zarephath. So God has to provide for him along the way. He's walking there. He's not going out and uh, finding the nearest highway, sticking out his thumb and catching a ride on a military convoy. He is Remember, he is being hunted by Ahab at this time, and so he has to trust God to uh, keep him concealed. He has to trust God to provide uh, water, food, everything for him on a day-by-day basis. All of this is just passed over rather quickly in the text, and so we have to think about it. He has to recognize that God is the one who is going to provide for him just as we do. And it doesn't matter what shape the economy is in. It doesn't matter what the stock market does because God still owns the cattle on a thousand hills and his a stock has not gone down, and he can still provide for us from the same resources that he did for Elijah. And we have to learn to rely upon promises such as Ephesians 1.3, recognizing that God has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is our, these are our resources that we have to draw on in order to face and handle the circumstances of life. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4, seeing that his divine power has granted to us. That word granted, whenever we see a word that where God is the subject and he's giving or granting or supplying or providing something, that always speaks of his grace. It always speaks of the fact that he is the one who gives and supplies, and we need to learn to receive that and to operate on it. Receiving is as much a part of grace orientation as giving. Some folks like to give. Uh, We enjoy giving. We enjoy helping people. And that's also part of grace orientation is to give. But another part of grace orientation is learning to receive and receive graciously and not with a sense that, well, I have to do something in return. That's not grace. It may be considered good manners in 21st century America, but that's not necessarily grace. Uh, sometimes we have to learn just to accept God's gifts to us through, through people. One of the greatest illustrations, I, I really have two, most of you have heard these before, of grace that have always meant a lot to me. One has to do with George Meisinger. Years ago, when George was a seminary student, 
he was down here in Houston uh, doing his pastoral internship at Baraka Church. And he was living with uh, Pastor Theme and his wife. Uh, he and his wife were staying there, and Pastor Theme and his wife went on vacation for a couple of weeks. And so George and Sandy were going to house sit. And as Pastor Theme was leaving to go out to the car, um, he turned around and came back to George and said, George, you know, I'm going to be gone for a while, and you don't have a lot of money. The church didn't pay you anything. Let me make sure that, that you're taken care of. He pulled out a wad of bills. This was about 1965 pulled out a wad of bills and peeled off about $300 bills. That was a lot of money in 1965, if you remember. And he gave it to George. George said, no, 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 I can't accept that. I, I, I can't take that. I, I, I haven't done anything for it. And Bob looked him in the eye and he said, if you don't learn to accept a gift, you will never understand grace. And that is so true. Many people think they understand grace, but they have a hard time accepting somebody doing something freely and generously for them. Another thing, a story I remember is also involving a pastor theme was Jim Myers was, was uh, pastoring in Arkansas. His first church it was about 1974, and they needed space at, at, at Baraka Church for something. And uh, so they were going to use the, the, the old library room. And it was filled with just a great collection of books. And Jim was told that he could go into the library and take any books that he wanted. And Jim told me a few years ago, he said, Robbie, I went in there, and there were just a great collection of old books, classic stuff, good biblical study material. And I took two boxes worth of books. He said, I just wasn't grace-oriented enough to take the whole thing. <laughs> See, that's what grace orientation does. It recognizes that we are completely dependent upon God and we are going to take from him everything we can get in order to make it through life. So God is teaching this to Elijah, that Elijah has to learn this. Now, he's learned this partially in the first test. And now he has to learn a few other things. Now, let's just stop a minute and talk about grace orientation, give you a little definition. Grace orientation means that we align our thinking and actions with God's policy of grace, which means we understand that all that we are and have in this life comes from the kindness and the benevolence of God and that nothing is due to our own inherent abilities, talents, or efforts. There are a lot of extremely talented, accomplished hard-working people who have nothing. Ultimately, all that we have comes from God. Now, in the process of grace orientation, there are four things that get developed. The first is humility. We have to learn to orient to God's authority. It's not about me. It's all about God. I don't care what you think or how important you are to you. It's all about God and not you. We have to learn to submit to his authority and his direction in terms of his word and to put into practice that which he commands. When we do this and we're oriented to his grace and his provision and we understand that he supplies everything for us and it doesn't matter what's going on with everybody's 401k plans, it doesn't matter uh, if you lose your job, it doesn't matter uh, what the state of the world's politics or economy are, and we are, because we're totally provided for by God, then we can have a relaxed mental attitude. Then we can do what Paul said to do in Philippians chapter 4, 5, and 6, that 
that we're to be anxious for nothing. We can just relax and enjoy God's plan in our life and watch him provide. And this gives the ability to rise above the details of life where we are not, our mental attitude, our emotions are not shaped by our circumstances, but no matter what the circumstances do or how they change, we are going to be relaxed, happy, and have peace because what God has provided for us. And the essence of this is learning to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So this is what Elijah does. And he applies the lesson. Verses 10 through 12, he goes to Zarephath. When he comes to the gate of the city, and it was a mid-sized city. It's a coastal town. It was a port during the time of the, uh, of the uh, Phoenicians. Incidentally, Zarephath also means the, a place of refining. So this is a place where God is going to refine Elijah just a little bit more. And he sees a widow there. This is who God has sent to provide for him. And he's probably thinking, uh, she doesn't have anything. She's just gathering up these little sticks to have a little fire. And so he goes to her and says, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. Well, what boldness. See, often people mistake boldness and confidence for arrogance. When you are resting in God's authority and provision, then you can be bold and confident without being arrogant. Moses was that way. Many other great leaders in the church have been that way because they understood the source of their provision and the source of their power. So he asks her to get a little uh, water in a jar that he can drink. And as she goes to get her, he says, Oh, by the way, please bring me some a piece of bread in your hand. Now, this is a little bit too much for her. And she turned around and she said, Well, as the Lord your God lives... Now, some people say because she used the word Yahweh here that she was probably a believer, a Gentile believer, and she may have been, but I don't think that's certain. If she was, she's rebellious because she's saying the Lord your God, not the Lord my God, which it will turn to by the end of the chapter. She says, the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Isn't that positive? <laughs> I mean, she just has a great positive outlook on life. Everything's gone. I'm going to go eat dirt. I'm going to die. That's it. Now, his response is not to empathize and say, yeah, life's been really rough with you, hasn't it? You know, he doesn't apply any of the modern principles of pastoral ministry to the circumstances. He just goes straight for the word of God. He said, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterward, you may make one for yourself and your son. Now, she's thinking, wait a minute, I have enough. If I give it what I have to you, then there's nothing for me and my son. And then he focuses on God's revelation. The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. His confidence is in the power and the provision of God. And so he's going to start off with an object lesson for her. He said, feed me first. That, you think that'll take up all of your resources, but it won't because God is going to continue to resupply those resources. And so Elijah is showing that he understands that he can trust God even in hostile territory and he is going to build, or God is going to build upon that in the development of Elijah 
especially for the next chapter. So we'll stop here, and we'll pick up on this next time as we see how God gives Elijah a third test, a third test beginning in verse 17, which will be his final preparatory test before the major confrontation on Mount Carmel. The key is humility. Humility recognizes that God's grace has given us everything, and we need to learn to rest in that provision. Let's bow our heads together, closing prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to teach us, to instruct us, that as we study your word, we see these eternal truths that encourage and strengthen us today. We know that as church-age believers, we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, and that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. But knowing it and making that a part of who we are and a part of our day-to-day decision-making are two different things. Father, we pray you challenge us with these things uh, today that we may make them a part of our life. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. We're all born sinners. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the grace of God has solved your greatest problem, which is your relationship to God. And by putting your faith alone in what Christ did on the cross alone, you have eternal life. And it is simple as that because it recognizes that you don't do anything for it. You don't add anything to it. It's not based in any way on who you are, what you have done, but it is based exclusively on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. The instant you trust in Christ as your Savior, you have eternal life, which can never be taken from you. Your sins are forgiven. They will never again be an issue in terms of your eternal relationship with God, and you are in God's royal family. Father, we pray that you would just keep these principles in our minds this week, that we may continue to apply them and continue to press on in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.